It is uh, so very good uh, to be here with you today. Uh, I received uh, yesterday uh, an advanced copy of what our service would look like, and uh, my copy had times attached, uh, how much time for each thing. And I feel confident that the time allotted for the sermon is uh, more than I will require for my sermon, so that gives me some latitude to uh, say a few personal remarks. Uh, I want to say how glad I am to be here, and uh, I want to say that uh, I know I am flanked by some of my dad's favorite students, uh, whom he spoke of so fondly and, uh, you know, so proud. And uh, at an additional personal word, uh, Jessica became precious to, uh, to us uh, when he died uh, as she ministered to our family and uh, met with us and planned his service and prepared it and then preached at it just right. And uh, so I'm, I'm very grateful to be, to be here with these people. I was delighted also to, uh, to see that Dr. Whitworth was going to be playing for this morning's service, uh, because in addition to being a dear friend of my father's, uh, I think it's fair to say he was my father's favorite organist. Uh, <laughs> even before I met Dr. Whitworth for myself, my dad told me, he said, uh, I believe I could walk into a room where Albin is playing a hymn and I would know which verse he was playing, even if nobody was singing the words. <laughs> because Alvin plays the words, uh, plays so meaningfully. So uh, yeah, that's just, that, thank you. It's, uh, yeah, awfully good to see you again. Uh, it would be a privilege, you know, to stand in this pulpit on any occasion, and uh, I know that. Um, and it's especially so for me on this occasion. Uh, my dad's, what would have been my dad's 100th birthday. Uh, I can't think, candidly, of a place I'd rather be to commemorate his birthday uh, because he, he loved this place uh, and this people. And he was here for the last 22 years of his life, and his love for and vision for this place uh, never tired. So um, it's, it's just right uh, to be here. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, shortly after my dad came to Asbury in the early uh, 1990s, uh, he told me about the minister's conference, the annual minister's conference that was held here then, and what a splendid event it was, and he said, you have to be sure to carve out that week and to come. So I did. Uh, and the first year that I came to the minister's conference, the opening of the event was an evening worship service over at the gymnasium. And uh, my dad and I uh, <clears throat> drove in from Lexington uh, and uh, had to park quite a distance. Uh, you know what that's like right now, right? Uh, had to park at a distance, and then we walked hurriedly towards the gymnasium. My dad was not a hurrier. Uh, and so I asked him, why are we, you know, hurrying? And he said, we don't want to miss the first hymn. And I said, why is that? He said, because you haven't sung, and can it be, until you've sung it at Asbury. <laughs> and uh, I, I know that that's true, uh, and maybe any other hymn for that matter. Uh, I, I was blessed by that first year's experience at the minister's conference. Uh, so blessed that I came back again. And any time the dates were released for the minister's conference, I put it in the calendar right away and built around that. And it was a consistent blessing for me, you know. Uh, a combination of blessings, the blessing of the fellowship and the worship that was always found here, the blessing of the continuing education opportunities that were part of that week, and then the blessing of spending the week uh, with my dad. So I came year after year, 
and I was always blessed. And I'll tell you what has happened as a result, and I'm sure that you'll recognize the phenomenon. In the economy of God's work, when he has blessed you regularly through whatever, a place, a person, a thing, a song, a singer, author, um, there is a residual grace of God in that place, and you're blessed without any effort at all, right? So just to be here is a blessing to me. Nothing special would have to be going on, and nobody would have to say anything or do anything. It's just a blessing to be here, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for the invitation. I made the drive down here from Wisconsin yesterday, and uh, I want to talk to you just a bit about driving. Uh, specifically, I want to ask you, what is the most beautiful road you've ever driven on? The most, what is it? Interstate 1. Interstate 1. So where is that? Okay, along the coast? Okay. So maybe, right, uh, a road with a view, right, a coastal highway where you've got ocean all along the side, or maybe for a different temperament, it's a drive through mountains where every turn brings a new panorama, a new vista. And maybe for somebody else, it is driving down some broad avenue in a, in a big city with uh, skyscrapers towering on every side. Or maybe it is a country road that's winding through rolling hillside farmland. What's the most beautiful road you've ever driven on? For the years that I lived in Virginia, I enjoyed very much driving on the Blue Ridge Parkway. Uh, that was a lovely place to be and always scenic and uh, beautiful to drive. At a very different level, I also remember fondly a through-the-night drive that uh, my wife and I took from Virginia to Boston, where her brother lived at the time. Uh, we made the entire drive in just one road. It was I-95 North. And by the time we had concluded that journey, I thought, you know, there is no other highway like this, no other stretch of highway like this in the world, just because of the cities that are on it, you know? It took us through or by Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Maryland, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Newark, New Jersey, New York City, Boston, Massachusetts. If you like big cities, <laughs> I commend to you I-94, uh, I-95 out of uh, north out of Virginia. Then there are roads whose beauty is of a different sort. Roads that are not beautiful to the eye, but they are beautiful to the heart. So maybe you would say that the street you grew up on, or maybe the street where your grandparents lived, is one of the most beautiful streets in the world, and it wouldn't look like anything special to anybody else, but you know it's a beautiful street. Well, I had an experience <clears throat> on a certain highway just a few years ago that uh, taught me something about the beauty of roads and about the beauty of life. Uh, a few years ago, I was driving on I-65 South through Indiana, same road that I uh, spent a good deal of my day on yesterday. Uh, I got on a little southeast of Chicago, and it took me past a lot of exits for small towns and a great many wind turbines, and then through Indianapolis, and then passed a lot more exits for small towns, and then ultimately to Louisville. And uh, as I was driving along and taking it in, I was filled with this sense of well-being and a certain delight in my soul. 
And I kind of stretched back in the driver's seat and I thought, boy, this is a beautiful drive. Now, do you know I-65 through Indiana? <laughs> uh, if there was a national poll taken ranking the 10 most beautiful highways in America, I don't think I-65 in Indiana would make the list. <laughs> I don't think it would make the top 25. I'm not sure it would make it the top 100. But uh, that's not because it's an unattractive road. It's just an unspectacular road. And yet while I was on it, it was just so beautiful to me. Uh, earlier in the service, we uh, recited together this uh, fundamental ancient affirmation of our faith. And uh, it climaxes with these statements of what we believe. I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This is the exclamation point that comes at the conclusion of Christian doctrine. Resurrection and eternal life. The resurrection of the body and life everlasting. That is the decisive final piece of what we believe. Resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I was fascinated a few years ago to watch an uh, interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Tyson is an astrophysicist who has emerged from the relative anonymity of uh, academia to become something of a popular scientist. He has a popular appeal, uh, maybe like Carl Sagan of an earlier generation. And uh, along the way, the interviewer asked him what he believed happens to us when we die. And now he is an eloquent and a charming speaker, and so he spoke eloquently and charmingly about digestion <laughs> and calories and energy, and burial, and the cycle of life. And I thought as I heard it, well, yeah, if you are a materialist, that's as far as it goes, right? If you believe that we are nothing more than matter, then the only way we continue to exist is in nourishing subsequent plant and animal life until the sun burns out, or until the ever-expanding universe grows impossibly cold. And then that's the end of the materialist doctrine. But from beginning to end of Scripture, we are told that we are not just matter. And Christian doctrine doesn't end in compost. Instead, it ends with resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Uh, a few moments ago, we heard uh, Paul's familiar words to the first century Christians in Thessalonica. He was writing as a pastor. He was writing as a theologian to folks who were bewildered about loved ones, about fellow believers who had died. And he didn't want them to be ignorant about that. Didn't want them to be uninformed about those who had died. And along the way, he said to them famously, we do not grieve as others do who have no hope. That word to a first century audience is, boy, just as pertinent, just as needed in our 21st century context because so many folks in our culture live without hope or cling to some pretty unsatisfying counterfeit kinds of hope. But not the Christian, because Christian doctrine doesn't climax, you know, meeting worms in the ground 
but meeting the Lord in the air. Well, those of you who are part of uh, the United Methodist tradition, as I am, you probably know that our hymnal, the United Methodist hymnal, uh, is arranged theologically. There are different ways you can organize a book of songs. Uh, ours follows the same basic theologic of the Apostles' Creed. So we sing in order about the Father, and about the Son, and about the Holy Spirit, and about the Church, and then we conclude by singing about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And one of my favorite hymns from that section is that triumphant William Howe hymn that we sang earlier for all the saints. It became personally dear to me a number of years ago, um, just after a family member had died. She had been dying for a while. Um, the decline of her mind had been going on for some, some years, and then the decline of her body. And it happened that the, my first Sunday back in church, we were scheduled to sing that hymn for all the saints. And uh, we sang that verse, which wasn't part of our singing today, O blessed communion, fellowship divine, we feebly struggle, they in glory shine. And I choked up when I sang it, because I thought, she's made that transition now. She was feebly struggling for years. Now she's signing in glory. And here again is where what Scripture tells us and what we affirm with gusto is so different, so day and night different from the nonsense the world around us believes right now. Because in the materialist paradigm, a human being is at his or her apex right now. <laughs> right now is when you and I are at our best when we are still composed as living human beings because only decomposition follows. But the Christian believes that this present state of affairs is our lowest point. <laughs> we feebly struggle, don't we? But they in glory shine. Then the hymn concludes with this, you know, triumphant picture of uh, saints they're not going to the grave, they're going to glory. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl, streams in the countless host, singing, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Uh, that's the kind of triumph, that's the kind of victory that the Christian associates with death. Which is not to say that there's not grief, you and I know that there is, but it's a reminder that the grief is all here. The grief is only here. For those who have died, we say of them that they have gone before. They have crossed over into the promised land, but they have gone to glory. And it's that prospect of glory and victory and reunion that ought to cast back onto our days in this life a beauty and a hope and a goodness. For those who have no hope, you know, death is just the inevitable grim reaper that casts a pall of meaninglessness and doom over this life. But for those who have the hope of heaven, Paul says, you know, death is gain. This is promotion. This is glory and healing and being in the presence of God. 
So rather than casting a pole over life, that prospect, including death, that prospect shines onto this life, hope and promise and beauty. Uh, my dad spent the last two decades of his life here in Kentucky. So I suppose more than two dozen times I drove I-65 south through Indiana to come and visit my dad. And I realized on that trip just a few years ago, that's why this road is so beautiful to me. It's not that the road itself or the views surrounding it are that spectacular, they're not. The road was beautiful to me because every time I drove on it, I was excited. I was excited about where I was going. And I was excited about who I was going to see. So I ask you, what's the most beautiful road you've been on? And to the Christian, I say, you're on it right now. Every day you and I are on it. Even if you're not surrounded by circumstances that are lovely, let alone breathtaking. Even if the scenery of your life is ordinary and sometimes unsightly. Even if you are going through, living through life's version of construction or traffic or inconvenience or unfavorable weather. You and I are on. We live on the most beautiful road, a road that is made beautiful by where we're going and by who we're going to see when we get there.